For those of you who don't know me, I am Dave Ritter. I'm Ross's father-in-law, Emily's dad. Most importantly, I'm Ethan, Luke, and Sophie's granddad. And that's, uh, that's important. Now, the, the worst part about being here today is that they're not here. They're in Minnesota. And so uh, I don't get to see them this, this visit, but uh, it is great to be with you and to be able to open the word with you today. Uh, we're in this series called, What Does Christmas Tell Us About? And last week, uh, Ross talked about what does t- Christmas tell us about Jesus. Today, we're talking about what does Christmas uh, teach us or tell us about God. And our primary text is going to be 1 John 4.10. And if you want to open your Bible to that passage, you can. It will be on the screen as well. On the 23rd of this month, uh, Diane and I will observe the 38th anniversary of our engagement. And you think, uh, okay, wait, December 23rd, that's a strange day to get engaged. Why didn't you get engaged, you know, on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve? Well, that actually was the plan. Uh, we have been talking about, you know, becoming officially engaged, and we actually gone shopping for a ring together, and uh, we went to the little... Uh, jewelry store in town, my hometown, and had Mr. Wilson had helped us pick out a, a, a ring. It had a very small diamond. It was all I could afford uh, as a student and prospective seminarian. And uh, did you know that there's research that actually says the bigger the diamond, the greater the chances the marriage will fail? Well, if that's the case, our marriage is going to last 100,000 years because <laughs> it was a pretty small diamond. But we, uh, we went to the store on the 23rd to pick it up because the, the plan was that we would get officially engaged on the 24th, uh, Christmas Eve, and I'd present her the ring and, you know, all that romantic moment or whatever. Uh, but after she, she tried the ring on in the store, we would make sure it fit, and then we went out in the parking lot, and I'm carrying the ring bag, and we get in the car, and she says, I want to try the ring on one more time. And I said, oh, okay. So I put the ring on her finger, and she's looking at it, and she says, I don't want to take it off. I said, what do you mean you want to take it off? She says, I don't want to take it off. Let's go talk to my parents tonight. So I was like, oh, my goodness. So we got, we got engaged on December 23rd, not the 24th. But that's kind of our little, you know, romantic story of Christmas time and our engagement. You know, um, even more so than Valentine's Day, we often associate Christmas with love and romance, right? I mean, think of all the great Christmas movies that are out there, and they all seem to have some great romantic subplot to them. It's a Wonderful Life, for instance, and a lot of Christmas movies have that romantic subplot. So many secular Christmas songs uh, play on our yearning for love and romantic Christmas time. So you remember the song, it's that time of year when the world falls in love. Every song you hear seems to say, Merry Christmas, may your New Year's dreams come true. Or how about, in the meadow, we can build a snowman. We'll pretend that he is Parson Brown. He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no, man, but you can do the job while you're in town. Christmas is supposed to be this time of year when we experience the most intense kind of love. And that's exactly what makes Christmas a very difficult time for so many people because the love just isn't there. Uh, The the special someone with whom to snuggle by the fire has passed away or walked out or has never bothered to show up. Uh, Or for others, Christmas is at best a strained attempt to call a truce to family hostilities, you know, an attempt to put a romantic veneer on things, if only for the sake of the kids. But the antagonism will creep right back in as soon as Christmas is over. Face it. Christmas, for some of us, just is plain lonely, even in a house full of people. Some of us don't feel loved, don't feel lavished with attention, don't feel lavished with affection. And so the Hallmark card 
you know, image of gathering hand in hand before a, a, a warm hearth, a glowing hearth, is nothing but a, a cruel farce. Even worst of all is if you don't feel loved by God. God seems far away. And you're going through this situation, and, and you're thinking to yourself, look, if God really loves me, then, then where is he in all this? Oh, why hasn't God bothered to show up for me? He must not love me. You say, all I want for Christmas is love. Is that too much to ask? And the answer is a resounding no. It's not too much to ask. Because what Christmas teaches us about God is that, not that God is distant and uncaring, unfeeling and, and, and without concern for you. What Christmas teaches us about God is that God is love. That you are loved with the greatest love of all. As I said, our text this morning is 1 John 4.10 that says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This verse and the ones surrounding it show us at least four ways that God's love for us is the greatest love of all. And that's what Christmas teaches us about God. That God is love. You are loved with the greatest love of all. And why is it the greatest love of all? Well, first of all, it comes from the greatest source. This love has the greatest source of all. Namely, God himself. You know, religion talks about people expressing their love for God. Religion is basically an attempt to make up for the fact that we haven't loved God as we should. The problem with religion is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how you try to be good, no matter how many times you go to church, no matter how many good works you do, you can't be good enough to love God as God deserves to be loved because we all have sinned and we fall short of his glory. We've all blown it. But the difference between religion and Christianity is that Christianity says, you're not capable of loving me the way I deserve to be loved, but I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to take all the initiative needed to, to show my love for you and to bring you into relationship with me. In this is love, it says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. This love is the greatest source of all because it comes from the most important person in all the universe. You are loved with the greatest love of all because it comes from the greatest source, God himself. You know, sometimes we carry deep wounds because the great people in our lives, the people that were supposed to have loved us, haven't loved us as they should. They've disappointed us in some way. Some of the deepest wounds that people carry with them are, are come from love having been withheld by those most important people of all. I remember talking with a woman who struggled mightily with the idea that God loved her. And she talked about her parents and how her parents loved her with a very conditional kind of love. As long as she was the perfect daughter, the A student, and, and the achiever, then they would affirm her. But if she fell short of that ideal in any way, shape, or form, they would withhold love. And so she said to me, how can I be sure that God loves me when my own mother didn't love me? When you are not loved by the most important people in your life, it leaves a deep, deep wound. But Christmas is the visible demonstration of the fact that the most significant person in all of the universe has loved you with the greatest love of all. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. 
Here's the second way this is the greatest love of all. Not only does it come from the greatest source of all, namely God himself, but it comes at the greatest cost of all, namely the life of God's own dear son. It says, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and did what? Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love not only comes from the greatest source, it comes at the greatest cost. You know, we tend to measure the value of gifts by how much they cost the giver, don't we? It's only natural that we do so. I've got this uh, bag here. So suppose suppose that um, somebody in your life comes to you at Christmas time and says, I want to express my uh, love for you. Here's a fruitcake. Well, now, first of all, I don't like fruitcake, so that wouldn't be a very you know, thoughtful gift. Uh, but then secondly, you turn it over, and unknowingly, they left a little label on the bottom, which clearly indicates that this is regifted fruitcake. <laughs> because it says, you know, to your friend from somebody else. That, and, and so you're thinking, not only did they give me a gift I don't really want, but it didn't cost them anything. You know, that gift is pretty much worthless, right? Now, how about this? My wife, over the last several weeks, has been busy working on gifts for some people that she really cares about. And uh, she made these quilts. It's a a technique that she says is paper piecing. Did I get that right? Paper piecing. And if if you were to look at this up close, you would see it's a very intricate design. They're tiny little pieces. Every one of those hundreds of pieces have been sewed together to make this beautiful, you know, quilted tapestry of the nativity scene. She made six of these. She spent hours and hours working on them because she wanted to give them to people that she really cares about. Now, when you understand what goes into a gift like this, the talent, the effort, the hours of work that went into this, is that a gift you'd rather have than a re-gifted fruitcake? I think so, right? Because we value a gift by what it cost the giver. Well, think of the gift of Christmas, and what it cost God the Father. It cost the life of his own dear son. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if I know your pastor, there's one one of his favorite topics of all is agape, right? Isn't he always talking about agape love? Well, that's what this is about. This is love that is sacrificially giving of myself, giving what I have for the benefit of another. And there is no greater act of of self-giving than what God gave us when he gave us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're not just talking about the manger here. We're talking about the cross. Because that word propitiation is, is a big word. It comes from the Greek word helasmon. And, and basically what propitiation is, it's an atoning sacrifice. It's, it's the payment of a ransom to avert the wrath of God. That's what that means. So what is it going to cost to avert God's wrath from us because of our sin? The Bible says we all have sinned. We all deserve his judgment. And, 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 we, and the judgment of sin is what? Death. And yet, God loved us so much, he didn't want us to die. And so what did he do? He provided a propitiation an atoning sacrifice, a ransom paid in our place so that the wrath of God against sin can be averted. The wrath of God was directed at Jesus as he hung on the cross, bearing our sin, dying on that cross. 
In, in that case where there was no possibility of our appeasing God with gifts, God steps up in love and says, I'll pay the ransom myself. I'll give the life of my son in payment for you and me. My first grade teacher was a retired missionary from Africa. This was in a public school. And Miss Landry uh, was very crafty at the way she got the gospel uh, into uh, our, our, our studies. I mean, she, she helped us think about the gospel without even talking about Jesus a lot of times. But I knew what she was doing because I've been raised in church, and I, and I could pick up on, on, oh, I know what Miss Landry's doing here. She told us a story one time that I'll never forget. It's about a mountain one-room school uh, way up in the hills of Tennessee or somewhere like that. And, and the discipline in that little one-room school was severe to keep the rowdy students, uninterested students, to keep them in check. And so there was no grace, no mercy in that schoolroom. You paid attention to the headmaster or you, you were going to get a whipping. Well, the noon recess ended and the teacher um, was interrogating the class because Sally Jane's lunch had somehow disappeared during the lunch hour, and after a few minutes of verbal threats and demands, there was a sob heard uh, in the back of the class. It was little Billy, a thin, undernourished child who came from the poorest of the poor families of that mountain community. And the, the teacher demanded, did you take Mary Jane's lunch? And he said, yes, sir. I, I was hungry. The teacher said, nevertheless, you did wrong to steal, and you must be punished. And as the teacher removed the leather strap from the wall, he ordered Billy to the front of the room and told him to remove his shirt and lean over the desk. And the arm of the teacher was raised over the bent, trembling form of that little undernourished child. And all of a sudden, from the back of the room, there was a big husky voice saying, Hold it, teacher. Let me take his whipping. It was the biggest boy in the class. His name was Big Jim. And Big Jim was striding down the aisle, removing his shirt as he came. He said, let me take his whipping. And the teacher was aghast. But knowing that justice must be demonstrated, he consented to lay the belt to the back of Big Jim with such force that even that strong boy winced with pain and his eyes watered. But Billy never forgot the day that Big Jim took his whipping. God in pity looked at us in our sin, frail and destitute as we were. God looked at us facing the just demands of his holiness, knowing that we would never survive if his full wrath was vented on us and our sin. And he took on human flesh and became our sinless brother, stepping in at that critical moment to take in our place the punishment required by his own justice. God's wrath turned away from us Because God's own Son was sent in love to be the propitiation of our sins. You are loved with the greatest love of all. It comes from the greatest source of all. It comes at the greatest cost of all. Thirdly, it has the greatest benefit of all. The removal of sin and restoration of the sinner. Look again at verse 10 where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of for our sin. God's wrath has been turned away. So that instead of living under a death sentence, we have been given life. And, and the verse just before this talks about that life. In, in 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not die, not suffer death, not suffer eternal punishment, but through Christ, we might live. God's love is seen, the greatness of God's love is seen in the, the way it benefits us. He gave his son to die for undeserving sinners to satisfy the demands of God's justice to help us pass from death to life and to bring about a transformation in us that makes of us something truly beautiful. Marianne Bird has written a little piece called The Whisper Test. She says, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me uh, that how I looked to others, a, a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. And when my classmates would ask, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them that I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born this way. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in second grade whom we all loved, Mrs. Leonard. She was a short, round, happy, sparkling lady, and annually she would give us a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. And I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited for what she would say to me. Words that would change my life. Words that God must have put into her mouth. For Mrs. Leonard whispered to me, I wish you were my little girl. God says to every one of us, deformed by sin, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. That's the kind of love that transforms us, that takes defeated, dirty sinners and makes them into daughters and sons of the living God. You are loved with the greatest love of all because it comes from the greatest source of all. It comes at the greatest cost of all. It has the greatest benefit of all. And finally, it makes the greatest impact of all. It enables us to love one another God's love turns selfish sinners into lavish lovers of others. And so in verse 11, the very next verse, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you've been loved with this incredible love and you really get it at your heart level, then how should you respond to other people? Love them with that same love. And, and if we learn to love, with, love others with the love that we've been loved with, then that's transformative. It not only changes us, it changes the world. Recipients of this kind of love have no choice but to love one another. You can't remain unmoved by this kind of love. We are to be the tangible expression of God's love. You know, the only way some people will ever know how much God loves them is by the way God's people love them with this kind of love. And yet, why are we so stingy in showing his love, especially to those who need it the most? There's another great story told by Nancy Dahlberg. 
Uh, She says it was Sunday, Christmas. Our family had spent the holidays in San Francisco with my husband's parents, but in order for us to be back at work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles home to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. It's normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids, it can be a 14-hour endurance test. And when we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City, this little metropolis made up of six gas stations and three sleazy diners, and it was into one of these diners that the four of us trooped, road-weary and saddle-sore. As I sat, Eric, our one-year-old in a high chair, I looked around the room and wondered, what am I doing in this place on Christmas Day? The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everyone else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we are all somehow out of place on this special day when even the cynical pause to reflect on peace and brotherhood. My reverie was interrupted when I heard little Eric squeal with delight. Hi there! Two words he thought were one. Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, 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 on the metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bare, and a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped and giggled, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it all in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else eons ago, dirty, greasy, and worn. Baggy pants, both they and the zipper at half-mast over a spindly body. Toes that poked out of would-be shoes. A shirt that had ring around the collar all over. And a face like none other. Gums as bare as Eric's. Hair uncombed, unwashed, and unbearable. Whiskers too short to be called a beard but way, way beyond a shadow, and a nose so varicose that it looked like the map of New York City. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled. And his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between, what do we do, and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there, hi there. Every call was echoed. I noticed waitress, the waitress's eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and, and several people sitting nearby us <coughs> hemmed out loud. The old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and pulverized it on the way. I whispered, why me, under my breath. Our meal came and the cacophony continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, do you know patty cake? Atta boy, do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows Peekaboo. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was drunk in the disturbance, and I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, all except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a Skid Row bum. Finally, I'd had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored, around uh, to to see his old buddy. Now I was mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me get out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I bolted for the door. I soon became, it soon became obvious that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew near to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him and any air that he might be breathing. As I did so, Eric, all the while, with his eyes riveted to his best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. 
The bum's eyes both asked and implored, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the man's. Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby consummated uh, consummated their love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. And I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment. And then his eyes opened and he set them squarely on mine. And he said in a firm and commanding voice, You take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. And said, God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, oh God, forgive me. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does Christmas tell us about God, about the Father? It tells us that he is love and that you are loved with the greatest love that there ever has been, the greatest love of all. It comes from the greatest source of all. It comes at the greatest cost of all. It has the greatest benefit of all, and it should have the greatest impact of all. You are loved with the greatest love of all. Now go love others with that same kind of love. Will you bow with me in an attitude of prayer? As we're kind of in this quiet moment, I just want you to think about the the love of God for you. In spite of your circumstances, your circumstances may, may try to tell you that God doesn't love you, But God has already proved his love for you beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is no question that God loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to take care of your greatest problem of all, the problem of your sin. And you know, the Bible says that if he loved us that much, that he was willing to do that for us, will he not also, along with that son, graciously give us everything else that we need? That's the assurance that we have as as believers in Christ. Now, you may be here thinking to yourself, you know, I I never quite grasped it that way. I I want to know God's love the way you're talking about it here today. How can I connect with that love? You know, the Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all done things and said things and thought things that are displeasing to God. And because of our sin, we cut ourselves off from a loving Father. But... He loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, trusting his work on the cross and trusting in the fact that God raised him from the dead, trusting in Jesus to forgive us our sins and to give us new life with God, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we connect with God in a way we never could before. 
It's called salvation. God holds it out to us as a gift. It's not something we can earn or deserve. And like any other gift, it only becomes yours when you reach out and receive it from the giver. Well, there's only one way to receive this gift, only one way to reach out and receive it from the giver, and that's by faith, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone to be your rescuer from sin and your leader for life. And if you can't remember a, a, a time in your life when you made that decision, when you said, God, I'm a sinner, and I need your grace, I need your forgiveness, I need Jesus, then I want to give you that opportunity right now. And, and if it's your heart desire to reach out and, and receive this amazing gift of salvation that connects you again with the God who loves you, then I would invite you right where you are to say this prayer from your heart. Just say it something like this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I confess that like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that are displeasing to you. I have sinned. I deserve your judgment. But I thank you for loving me. I thank you for sending Jesus to take care of my sin problem. I thank you that he died on the cross in payment, propitiation for my sins. I thank you that you raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death, proving that I can have life with you. I receive Jesus now to be my Savior and Lord. I invite him to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life, come into my life, Lord God, and transform me by your love. Now, if that's the prayer of your heart today, and you prayed that prayer for the very first time, would you just raise your hand so I can see it, so I can pray for you? Is there anyone? Anyone at all? Lord, we're so grateful for your salvation. We're grateful for your great love for us that, that you loved us. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, help us to live in that love and throughout this Christmas season to love others with that love with which we've been loved by you, God our great and loving Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.